Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And what we're going to do today is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we choose a natural history topic, research the science behind it, and then we take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything we've learned. And Steve, I think today, this is the coldest it has ever been for one of our recording sessions. Yeah, I think our icy beards speak for themselves. <laughs> what does your thermometer say? Five degrees? Yeah, I, it fluctuated between three degrees and five degrees on my way over here. So this is a cold one. Yeah. We are at Tift Nature Preserve, which is an urban nature sanctuary just outside Buffalo, New York. Lots of Phragmites, lots of Japanese knotweed, lots of single-age cottonwood. <laughs> <laughs> lots of invasive species. Yeah. Yeah. But for this month's topic, before I say exactly what it is, I wanted to start with a story. Is that okay with you? Yeah. All right, I have a, I have a good uh, segue into it, a good lead-in. So this story goes back probably about two years. And my wife and I, we'd come home late uh, from being out. Uh, we had actually gone to see The Force Awakens. Oh, I was going to say your partying days? <laughs> no, but... <laughs> no. Did, uh, did you see the new Star Wars? Oh, yeah. I liked yeah. it. So anyway, we were coming back late. It was probably 1 or 2 in the morning. I got right into bed while my wife was going around shutting down, turning off lights and closing curtains, all that business. And I hear her give out a yell. She says, Bill, get out here. So I jump out of bed, go running out into our living room. And my wife says, there's something out here. There's something alive. I think it's a chipmunk. She says, I ran behind the, the, the couch. So I pull out the couch. We're looking all around. And the next thing I know, I see something leap out of the corner of my eye, I see it leap across the room. Actually, in your house? <laughs> in my house, like, glide across the room, lands on the curtain, runs up to the top, sitting on the curtain rod. It's a flying squirrel. Whoa, that's awesome. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> like, oh my God, there's a flying squirrel in our house. And since they're nocturnal, mm -hmm. like owls, if anyone's out there has ever been on an owl prowl, very often nocturnal animals don't exhibit a huge fear of people. They don't run into them all that much. Mm -hmm. So the flying squirrel, I could actually put my hand on the curtain rod next to it, and it wouldn't even move. It was just kind of looking at me. <laughs> but as soon as I would try and grab it, I got on some oven mitts, tried to grab it, because, you know, part of me is worried this thing's going to bite me. Mm -hmm. And did you ever play with those? It's almost like a balloon they have filled with, like, a gel, and it's in a tube oh, shape. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You try to hold on to it, and it just slides yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. That's what a flying squirrel feels like in the Really? <laughs> every time I would try to grab it, it would just slide right out of my hand. Well, I've had a new kitten for the last two, three months, and she kind of feels like that. <laughs> <laughs> that extra fat that just wants to kind of slide, you know? We, uh, we eventually corralled it into our, uh, our Florida room, our, our three-season room, and then just opened the doors, and, and it was able to glide away. But we think it came down our chimney. We had had a fire the night before. Our flue was open. So I think it came down our chimney. But that was my first experience with a flying squirrel. Yeah. Uh, I've heard lots of stories about them. And this episode, actually, we've been kind of, at least in my mind, thinking about doing a flying squirrel episode ever since episode three. Yeah. Do you remember what we were covering on that episode? Torpor. Or yeah. hibernation. Yeah. High bear nation. That was a high bear nation episode. <laughs> yeah. And I had mentioned that I had heard at one time uh, that flying squirrels were the most abundant squirrel uh, in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that a little later on, right? Yeah, and yeah. also the southern flying squirrel actually at certain temperatures will go into a torpid-like state. Oh. Which, that's not one of our seven sleepers, so... Right, I didn't hear that. Do you want to quickly list off the seven sleepers? Because 
I don't remember them all the time. <laughs> I will try. Generally speaking, this is a rule of thumb for the Northeast, but animals that will go into a state of true hibernation mm -hmm. are the woodchuck, the jumping mouse, and some kinds of bats. And then you have three animals that enter periods of dormancy, which isn't true hibernation, and that would be the skunk, the raccoon, and the bear, the black bear. Is that only six? That's six, because then there's the chipmunk mm. who kind of rides the fence. Sometimes yeah. it will enter a true hibernation state. Sometimes it's more of, of just what we colloquially refer to as a deep sleeper. And some of you may be saying, what, the black bear isn't a true hibernator? It's, it's weird. It's yeah. debatable. <laughs> Listen to our hibernation it, episode to get the scoop on that. It kind of feels a little unique, maybe because of their size or, right. or insulation. They're definitely but doing their own thing. It's so, yeah, it's sort of interesting. Yeah. yeah. But the animal we're focusing on today, the flying squirrel, generally is not a hibernator and is active all winter long. Let me admit something really quick. Yeah. I've only seen flying squirrels. Like, I'm an avid hiker, and especially, you know, my friend group, we love to do night hikes. I've seen flying squirrels, I think, twice in my life. We're at a place called Hunter's Creek, and I had my headlamp on, just kind of like looking out into the woods at night, and suddenly from right above my headlamp, <laughs> flying in, you know, right? I didn't see where it landed, but it was just so quick and right over my head that, like, it was obvious what it had to have been. Right. <laughs> but uh, I've never really had a really good look at these guys. And I do have to point out, it wasn't flying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it didn't make that noise either that I said. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, so uh, before we get into it, you had a couple things you wanted to cover. Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. I gotta wake my thing up. I had like 80% battery. What is it at now? I can't see anything. Uh oh. Hold on. It's just too cold? Are you f***ing kidding me? Yeah. We gotta work this in. Huh. For every episode I use my iPad. I'm trying to save a little bit on paper, you know, and I just, <laughs> I have Word on my iPad and I, that's where my notes are. It, it died. I think the cold killed my iPad. It's too cold. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're going to try to go inside the nature center and try our luck there at least to uh, print out your notes. Yeah, I guess so. All right. All right. So while we're walking over there, I just want to say that you guys might notice that we have some cool art as our thumbnail again. Yeah. And that's thanks to Always Wondering Art. I have to point out, whenever you say that, it sounds like you're saying always wondering. Yeah. And it's always wandering. wandering. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm just not good at talking, all right? <laughs> and as always, their Etsy page will be in the episode description. So definitely go check them out and show them some support. Yeah, thanks to them for providing some beautiful artwork for us. Yeah. And I wanted to mention that if the audio sounds a little different, hopefully better, with this episode, it's because we finally have new audio equipment. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, those of you that have been donating to support the podcast, this is one reason that we've been asking people to do this. We wanted to upgrade our equipment to try to give a better listening experience, so we were able to purchase lapel mics. So, to anyone who's made a donation in the past, thank you. But we wanted to thank three people in particular who helped make this particular purchase possible, and that's Dan Stapleton, Julie Davies, and Amanda Hicks. Thanks to those three folks and everyone else for making this equipment upgrade possible. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, so we'll be figuring out the little quirks of this equipment and hopefully giving you guys a better listening experience. Yeah. Woo, that was lucky. 
Our thanks to uh, Kim and Kelsey of Tift for uh, letting Steve print out his notes. Yeah, so if you hear any paper wrinkling, you can thank them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the cold has reduced us to using less technology. Yep. Yeah. All right, so let's get into it. Flying squirrels. All right, and I do want to say that, at least for me, because these flying squirrels are so geographically widespread, I definitely poached my info from a few studies, as well as from Peterson's Field Guide to Mammals of North America. Uh, so it's going to be similar to the Cooper's Hawk episode in terms of how much we're actually going to be able to cover compared to what is possible to cover on these guys. Right, yeah. But maybe we'll tackle some more specific aspects of the flying squirrel biology in future bonus episodes. But right. today we're really giving you a general overview. This is an introduction yeah. to these fascinating curious cute little critters yeah so like bill was saying earlier unlike bats these mammals cannot actually fly right yeah <laughs> they're gliders and there are only gliding mammals and can glide for long distances and they can steer while they're gliding which is super cool yeah so as far as the distances i came across uh some different estimates if we look at flying squirrels globally I came across that one of the longest distances ever recorded was 295 feet, which is pretty crazy. Wow. When you yeah. think about it, it's almost as long as a football field, but that our flying squirrels here in North America, typically they're going to glide between 15 and 80 feet, mm -hmm. and long glides of 150 feet have been measured, and some even longer than that. And it was either one of the papers or the field guide, it had said that their flights average about 65 feet each glide, okay. but it has been seen gliding 300 feet, but on a downward slope. Okay, so that matches the longest distance that I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. and the only reason I brought my thing up was because I was wondering if your record was on flat ground and the one that I found was on a slope, yeah, and so they didn't even count it. So anatomically, these guys are very similar to other squirrels, but they do have a number of adaptations to suit their specific lifestyle. And if you've never seen a flying squirrel, we'll get into specific lengths of species, but they look squirrel-like, but their tail is not big and bushy, mm -hmm. and they have larger eyes. Yeah. So obviously their, their main adaptation that separates them from most squirrels is that furry parachute-like membrane. Mm -hmm. You came across the, the term for it, right? No. The patagium. No, I so, didn't find that. Yep, so they have that membrane that stretches from their wrist to the ankle, and the best description I saw is it turns the squirrel into a living, breathing paper airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So typically what they'll do is they'll glide from tree to tree, and with each leap, they take aim, spread their legs, and they turn into a square. Yeah, they usually start their glide from near the top of a tree and then land on a nearby tree within a few feet of the ground. And when they're flying, they usually stay pretty horizontal while they're in the air, but then they angle to an upright position to slow down right before landing. That's right. And when they're gliding, they can steer and they can exert control over their path with their limbs. So there's a cartilage rod that's attached to their wrists and that helps them steer during their flight. So imagine their hands and feet wiggling in opposite direction. So it helps control their descent. And they can even make turns mid-flight, even 180 degree turns. Whoa. So they, they have a lot of control over their movements I shouldn't say flight, I should say glide. Yeah. They have a lot of control when they're gliding. So in the tail, it has kind of feathered fur, mm -hmm. and it acts both as a stabilizer and a brake. So as you said, when they get close to their destination, they use their tail and kind of flip their body up. 
Yeah. And when you compare them to squirrels of similar size, there's certain parts of their body that are shaped differently. So they show a lengthening in the bones of their middle vertebrae and their forearms. And then the bones of the feet, hands, and their lower vertebrae are reduced in length. Oh. So the best way I could, best way I thought of to describe this was to imagine you had a sculpture of a squirrel made out of clay, like a, a chipmunk. And you were, you'd grab the head, you'd grab the rear end, and you'd stretch it, stretch out the middle. <laughs> <laughs> and then also stretch out the forearms. But think about it. What they're doing is they've evolved so their middle section lengthens. Uh-huh. So when they're in glide, that middle portion of their body, it's making their wings longer. Mm, wings. And, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> and then also with their forearms lengthened, it's making that flight area, uh, the part of their body. Sorry, I shouldn't be saying flight. <laughs> You guys have to forgive us when we say wings instead of membranes exactly. and flight instead of the glide. <laughs> and we'll we'll start forgiving ourselves too. <laughs> so those changes are making the, the membrane area wider and longer. Okay. And what that's doing is minimizing wing loading. Okay. So and that's it creates a larger wing area relative to its mass. So that helps it glide for longer distances. Okay. But the downside of that, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've watched any videos in, in doing research for this episode. But they are not well adapted for walking on the ground. Yeah, so I did read about that. They don't spend very much time on the ground, but sometimes they'll just spend a little bit. Yeah, it, yeah. watching them walk on the ground, it reminds me of watching a bat. A, a bat. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad I was able to read your mind on that one. Yeah, so they're much better off climbing in the trees and gliding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in terms of coloring on the membrane, the upper edge are generally blackish, regardless of the species. Again, they're strictly nocturnal. Their ears are naked, and they have flattened tails. So I don't think we had said that before, that the tails are flattened. Yeah, I just mentioned, not big and bushy like a gray squirrel or a red squirrel. Yep, and from here, I think we should talk about our two species of flying squirrel in the northeastern U.S. The northern flying squirrel, Glaucomys sabrinus, and the southern flying squirrel, Glaucomys volans. There are many morphological differences between these species, but the major ones are that the northern flying squirrel is larger and its belly fur is dark at the base. The northern is also fluffier and its gray face contrasts with its brown body. And its body fur is less sharply contrasting from the back to the belly. And finally, its tail frequently has a darker tip. Now, you said you were going to get into some measurements. Um, I definitely saw that the northern is a little bit bigger, like I said. Uh, The head and the body, 6.5 inches, and the tail is 5.5 inches. Whereas in the southern, the body and the head are 5 inches together, and the tail is only 4 inches. Yeah, so if you're talking about total body length, you know, generally speaking, the southern flying squirrel is smaller. You're looking at 5 to 10 inches long total body length, Mm -hmm. and then the northern is going to be 10 to 15. Yeah. But in all the pictures that I was looking at online... It was hard to tell the difference. Oh, yeah. I bet it's comparable to a Cooper's hawk, again, <laughs> to draw the two episodes together. Sure, there there is morphological fur coloration that you can tell apart. Yeah. But as I'll say later, there are a number of subspecies as well. Yes. And so that's going to make things a little bit confusing. But yep. I'm going to save that for a little bit later. The squirrel that came into my house, I'm assuming that it's a southern flying squirrel just based on the size that I recall. It was a couple years ago. Yeah. I just looked at a picture. I posted it on Twitter, you know, getting ready for this episode. 
and comparing it to the size of my curtain rod, I think it was on the small side, so I'm guessing it was the southern flying squirrel. So in terms of weight, the northern, the one that's larger, it's about four ounces, which is pretty light. Yeah. <laughs> and the southern, on average, 2.5 ounces. Yeah. Really small. And, and one other thing I want to break up in terms of identification, uh, the sounds that they make. The northern makes these soft clucking notes, and they're really only audible at close range, and it chitters when it's running away. It's generally quieter than the southern flying squirrel, which uh, produces bird-like chirps and twitters, um, seep, bird seep. <laughs> really, I mean, very much like a bird, especially an alarm. It also chitters, squeals, and squeaks. And the young and adults make ultrasonic calls, but they have not been shown to echolocate. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably just to communicate between individuals. So, a quick note on the hybridization between these two species. An analysis of microsatellite DNA data revealed that the northern and southern flying squirrels have recently hybridized in southeastern Canada. Right. Did you know that? Yeah, I yeah. did come across that. So, this is actually pretty surprising because the two species have very different bacular morphology. Ah. Now, for those of you who don't know what a baculum is, like me before reading this paper, it's the penis bone. <laughs> and you've probably notice that humans don't have penis bones, <laughs> but plenty of other placental mammals do, including other primates like the gorilla and chimpanzee. Did you know that? I did not know that. Well, regardless, because of the difference in bacular morphology, it has long been assumed that the northern and southern flying squirrels were reproductively isolated. Do you know the difference in the structure between the two species? No, I don't. I, this is as much as I know. All right, so... I'm not a pervert like you. <laughs> It's for science. <laughs> it's for science. I'm kidding. So the northern species has a penis bone that is robust and spiky. <laughs> robust. <laughs> Whereas the southern species, it's more slender, but it's longer. Oh, okay. Why would you say that so centrally? <laughs> you read. You read into that. I didn't say that. Uh oh. Freudian slip. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, just a couple other things about telling the dif uh, differences between the two. Can I talk about the range a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, just to give people an idea. Depending on where you are, the uh, you'll know which species you have in your area. So the southern flying squirrel, that's going to be found in the eastern half of North America, from southeastern Canada all the way down to Florida. Mm -hmm. And then there are some isolated populations found in Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. Mm -hmm. If you look at a range map, you'll see these little pockets going down through Mexico and Central America. Then the northern flying squirrel... That's found across the top of North America from Alaska all the way over to Nova Scotia and south to the mountains of North Carolina and west to Utah, Washington, and Oregon. Mm -hmm. And we should point out that the northern flying squirrel is typically found in coniferous or mixed coniferous forests, whereas the southern flying squirrel seems to hang out more in deciduous yeah. environments. Now, let me jump in because the Peterson's Field Guide to Mammals, that was published in 2006, and they felt like it was important enough to include that the Pacific Northwest subspecies of the northern flying squirrel, Glaucomys sabrinus oregonensis, it's very dark gray-brown above, and it's buff, a pale yellow-brown below, with an almost black tail. And it also mentioned that it may prove to be a separate species, <laughs> and how right they were. <laughs> yeah. So I'm laughing because Steve and I were talking about a little bit before we recorded about this, and... We were shocked to find that for once we both came across similar material. Yeah, I was telling Bill, like, I always like to try to find something to surprise him during an episode, but this time, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. You want to tell people? Sure. So 
Um, enter Glaucomys oregonensis. A the new hum- species. <laughs> the Humboldt's flying squirrel. Yeah. So as of May 2017, Glaucomys sabrinus has been proposed to be considered two separate species. The genetic data suggests that while the southern flying squirrel only has one lineage, the northern flying squirrel actually has two distinct lineages. The widespread continental lineage and a Pacific coastal lineage. Yeah. Did you come across that... From what they found in, in the DNA analysis is that the northern and southern flying squirrel, those are actually sister taxa. Yes. That diverged from a common ancestor more recently than that west coast lineage. Yeah, so the northern and the Humboldts diverged about 1.32 million years ago. And then the northern and the southern diverged about 1.07 million years ago. Yeah. 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 And one of the factors that led to this discovery was just like you mentioned, the northern and the southern species are able to hybridize, but the northern flying squirrel, as far as we know, can't hybridize with Humboldt's flying squirrel. But I also want to note that that 2017 study, they only found three sites in the Pacific Northwest where the Humboldt's and the northern uh, ranges overlapped. Right. And they only have three data points to work from. And in those three, they didn't find evidence of hybridization. But who knows? Maybe in the future, they might find some sites. That's why I said, as far as we know. Uh So, yes, uh, contact between the two species has been limited. One other thing that I actually found was a little bit interesting, and this kind of brings it into um, other tree squirrels, which, by the way, our flying squirrels in North America are more closely related to Asian flying squirrels than they are our tree squirrels, like the gray squirrel and the red squirrel. Okay. Um, so before the genetics work was done, the thought was that the northern flying squirrel and the Humboldt's flying squirrel probably diverged around the same time as the red squirrel and Douglas's squirrel because they have the same present-day continental-specific northwest by distributions. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> But that's not actually the case. The red squirrel and the Douglas squirrel diverged about 0.24 million years ago. And the northern flying squirrel and the Humboldt flying squirrel, like we said, diverged approximately 1.32 million years ago. This is called pseudocongruence. Have you heard that term before? I have not. This is when similar spatial patterns are formed in co-distributed taxa, but at different times. And the paper goes in to say that the cyclical nature of glacial and interglacial events throughout the Pleistocene, which lasted between 2.5 million and uh, 11.5 thousand years ago, would have provided many opportunities for North American boreal forest taxa to become isolated in separate eastern and western refugia during glacial maxima. Right. So just just to be clear, I was talking about glacial events and interglacial events, and maybe you've figured it out, but interglacial events are the more mild times between glacial events. And the glaciers retreat. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know I just went into that the Peterson's Field Guide said some morphological differences between the... Pacific Northwest uh, and Continental Northern Flying Squirrels, which turned out to be the Northern and the Humboldts. But it's actually much more complicated and they're really, really, really hard to tell apart. So the problem for non-geneticists is that there aren't really any reliable morphological characteristics to help tell these species apart. And the best bet for distinguishing them, I think like you were saying earlier, is geological because their ranges don't really overlap. There's only a few places where you might not be sure. Right. Or, if you can catch a squirrel and send that DNA sample off to a lab, you know, good luck with that. But as we said, they're hard to hold on to. Yeah. They're like those weird gel tubes. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to point out that 
I also came across another term I hadn't heard before. Maybe you or listeners have, but cryptic species. Oh, is, does that mean hidden? Yeah, so it's hidden. Like, like Bigfoot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or the Yeti. Yeah. yeah. So this is a species that's basically hidden in plain sight. There's, uh, you know, a, a group of animals that we assume is one species, but they look so similar that we don't realize that there's another species in there. And that's what happened mm-hmm. with that Pacific Northwest, those populations of flying squirrels. They just assumed, oh, these are northern. They're just a little darker. Mm-hmm. But DNA has revealed, no, they're definitely not separate species. <laughs> yeah. Or they definitely are separate species. All right, so we just stopped, folks. We're overlooking a wetland with, unfortunately, Phragmites. Phragmites, yeah. <laughs> But there's some cattails in there. Yeah. And we're looking across the marshland to a beautiful collection of industrial buildings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's some nice dogwoods mixed in here. Oh, and yeah. yeah. Some good stuff, some maples. Yeah, so Tift is definitely dominated by wetland. Uh, it's a reclaimed industrial site here in Buffalo, but a uh, great birding spot, especially in the springtime. Um, it's it's a great refuge in this urban environment for lots of bird species. Yeah. yeah. Whew. All right, now that I caught my breath, <laughs> I want to bring up a, a paper from 2007 that was saying that Glaucomys sabrinus is a keystone species in the Pacific Northwest. But the tough thing with when a new paper comes out, yeah. <laughs> reassigning species, it gets a little confusing. But since we know that that population is considered Glaucomys organensis now, I'll refer to it as Humboldt's flying squirrel for this next little part. Now, hang on. Yep. Before you move forward, mm-hmm. two things I want to point out. Yeah. Number one, we should tell people, why is it called the Humboldt's flying squirrel? Oh, do you know the guy? Well, it's named after Alexander von Humboldt, a famous uh, early American naturalist. But believe it or not, it's not purely just named after him. It's actually in reference to the coastal northern California county that bears his name that lies in the heart of the geographic distribution of this newly described species. So, sure, it's named after it's named after the county in the middle of the range, but the county is named after the man. But I just thought it was fascinating that it was like it was like direct and indirect at the same time. Sure, sure. Right. And then the second thing was keystone species for people that aren't aware. This is a species who's usually not very abundant within a system but it has a big impact. So think about wolves in Yellowstone. They are a keystone species. Yeah, they're like the top of the pyramid, right. controlling everything below them, which is much more abundant than Right, and keystone species are often top predators, but they don't have to be top predators. Yeah. Because obviously, flying squirrels. Top predator. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Humboldt's flying squirrel is considered a keystone because its diet facilitates an obligate, mutualistic relationship between mycorrhizal fungi and some trees and shrubs in its coniferous forest habitat. Now, mycorrhizal fungi, do you want to jump in? Sure, that's just the fungal network that provides a a symbiotic relationship that really keeps our forests healthy. Uh, It facilitates nutrient transfer between the soil and the trees. Yeah, and it'll actually invade the roots of the plant, but it's providing benefit for some. I think think they get a sugar payoff for that. Yeah, yeah. It's hugely important to our forests. Yeah, so it does this through feeding on fungi, and then it deposits its fecal pellets, which contain spores and nitrogen-fixing bacteria, onto the forest floor. And Like we are saying, the forest grows in the soil, it invades the tree roots, and in exchange for sugars, it facilitates the tree's ability to absorb water and nutrients, at least better than it would have otherwise. Now, that's not the only thing they do. Another factor is that the Humboldt's flying squirrel is also essential prey 
for some mesocarnivores and avian predators, including the spotted owl Strix occidentalis, which has been the subject of many studies due to its near-threatened status. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it on the red list. Yeah. <laughs> and I also came across something related. There were a couple studies that were looking at whether or not flying squirrels were indicator species of old-growth forest. And this seemed, both these studies seem to be concentrated in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And both studies came up with a negative response that no, at least according to their research, it couldn't be used as an indicator species. There was just too much variability. Yeah, you know, I saw the same thing, is that it was thought that they needed old growth forest, but it turns out that they just need some older forest characteristics right. in their environment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what I found was that their local abundance is frequently correlated with density of large trees and snags, shrubs and canopy cover, and coarse woody debris. Uh, and also, with the abundance of mycorrhizal fungi, such as truffles, especially in the Pacific Northwest. So they're clearly talking about the Humboldt's flying squirrel. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. yeah. I also saw that disturbance that reduces structural complexity of their environment, or the canopy cover, or the availability of large trees, typically results in smaller populations through its effect on food and dense sites. And also, without all that cover, without that structural complexity, it actually increases the risk of predation as well. In relation to that, I also came across a study that looked at the effects of different kinds of logging. Oh, yeah. And how it affects populations. Or how it isolates populations? No, no. Oh, I was seeing that potentially some of the species in North Carolina potentially may have been isolated partly due to logging. Oh, no, I didn't come across that. Yeah, because they live at higher elevations. And so if you're clearing out the forests at lower elevations, it would really limit where they can go. They don't Uh, spend a lot of time on the ground, like you were saying. It's all in trees. Yeah. But the study that I was looking at found that mixed-age harvesting, Mm -hmm. rather than clear cuts or all same-age harvesting, that actually can increase flying squirrel populations. Oh, yeah. Um, So even over unlogged forests... They seem to prefer mixed-aged stands. Sounds like healthy stands. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like a healthy stand that would reflect uh, a natural form of succession. Doesn't that kind of sound like it goes against the whole old-growth forest thing? Because old-growth forests are typically a lot of old stuff. Yeah, but they would have mixed ages in there, too, because you'd have natural forest openings with young trees growing up. Right, right. Patches of that. Yeah. Yeah. Before we move on, in terms of habitat, I just want to say that this is a complex topic, and we're speaking about it really broadly, because as it turns out, the ecology of flying squirrels, especially Humboldt's and the northern, their ecology is just as varied as the forest communities where it occurs. And it doesn't just occur in coniferous forests. Right. It also occurs in um, stands of hardwoods, uh, especially where there's snags and woodpecker holes available. So. And as we pointed out... The northern species and the southern species both have huge ranges. Oh, yeah. So they're going to be in a variety of forest types. Yeah, like, for example, the southern flying squirrel, it's mainly found in deciduous forests of oak, hickory, or beech maple. Right. But in the south, because it expands the entire eastern half of the U.S., it also likes pine woodlands and live oaks. Right. So it's it, it, there's just so many environments that it can exist in that right. it, it's so hard to speak so specifically. And I think this is, is a good time to mention how back in episode three, I wondered out loud about something and I'd heard mm. that the flying squirrel is our most abundant squirrel. And I actually put a call out to the audience saying, hey, if anyone's heard anything about this, let us know. And we got something. We did. Yeah. We did. So I want to thank Randy Har because way back... In June, he sent us an email with a link to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. 
And on their page for the flying squirrel, it actually says, the flying squirrel is the most common squirrel in Ohio because they are nocturnal and seldom seen, and most people don't recognize that they live with flying squirrels. Mm -hmm. So that sounds great. Now, that being said, there was absolutely no reference to any papers. Uh, it's a nice idea. It is. <laughs> and I actually sent an email out to the ODNR, but no one got back to me. Mm. <laughs> and I did a search lots of different ways of phrasing it to try to find any other evidence about abundance of flying squirrels as opposed to other squirrel species and I really couldn't find anything other than lots of websites saying that gray squirrels are the most abundant or red squirrels are the most abundant depending on where you were. So um, this is something I brought up to you earlier because it's not something I actually included in my notes. I actually forgot to go back to the study. Yeah. But I was looking at a small mammal abundance study that took place either in Virginia or West Virginia. And I was wondering, I was like, oh, am I going to find flying squirrels in here? It was definitely within the top 10, but I think it was probably closer to like seven yeah. than it was to three. Yeah. Like it was definitely lower on the list, but it was on the list. So th that was kind of impressive that the southern flying squirrel was found on the list. Okay. Yeah. I do want to point out to the audience that in Ohio, they were saying that the flying squirrel is the most common squirrel, oh. not the most common mammal. Right. So we were worried that people were getting confused about that. And I still think in the study that I breezed over, yeah. um, I think, I think gray squirrels were more abundant anyway yeah okay. yeah i think so i'll put a link to that study in the episode notes and if i'm wrong about any of those claims that i just said off the top of my head i'll i'll <laughs> write it i'll write it in our mistakes section all right all right well i have a surprise for you now oh i would like to talk about taxonomy that's crazy <laughs> that's usually your job <laughs> yeah all right i don't have a ton but let's walk i've gotten to you i think <laughs> All right, so I, we've talked a little bit about um, ancestors, common ancestors, but molecular studies have shown that flying squirrels are monophyletic. Now, this is another new term for me. Can I give it a shot? Yeah, go for it. So that means all extant flying squirrels share one common ancestor. That's right. Okay. So that group, our group of flying squirrels that we have, they belong to a clade. Mm -hmm. right? All descended from a common ancestor. And they seem to have originated at about 18 to 20 million years ago. So you mentioned that our flying squirrels and the flying squirrels in Asia are more closely related than our flying squirrels and, say, reds or grays. To me, it's curious. <laughs> I, I cannot say the gray squirrel genus. I just can't do it. That's all right. So there are three other groups of gliding mammals pocket gliders well hang on <laughs> i think it's cool because they developed they evolved this ability independently of the lineage of flying squirrels so this is convergent evolution so these are groups of animals that have evolved similar characteristics but they're not related okay so there's the kalugos in southeast asia kalugos never heard kalugos. of those i hope i'm saying that right there's just two species that make up the entire family and they're also known as flying lemurs Okay. Even though they're not related to lemurs. I was going to say lemurs. That's, aren't those monkeys or something? <laughs> primates. Oh, primates. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't say monkeys. <laughs> I should know better. You're the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> but if you get a chance, folks out there, look up Kalugo. Uh, C-O-L-U-G-O. -O. Uh, they're really neat looking. They, they look as if a bat and a lemur got together. So. <laughs> and then there's also another group called the Pitoridae. So that's a family of possums native to Australia and Papua New Guinea. And there are six species, and though that includes the sugar glider. Okay. So a lot of people tend to lump those together, the sugar glider and flying squirrels, but they're actually not related. Got um, it. A sugar glider is a possum. Oh, that's so weird to think. <laughs> yeah. 
So, and then the last group, they're located in Central Africa. Let's see if I can say this right, this family. Anomaluridae. Oh. So there's seven members and three genera. All Do you but, think it comes from anomalous or anomaly? I would think so. Yeah. I was trying to find it. But all but one of them can glide. And they're known as anomalures or scaly-tailed squirrels. Whoa. So they look similar to our squirrels, but they aren't closely related. And what distinguishes them is they have two rows of pointed raised scales on the underside of their tails. It actually looks kind of creepy. Yeah, that sounds weird. <laughs> so those are the scaly-tailed squirrels from Central Africa. So those are the three groups of mammals that have evolved this gliding ability, but independently not related to our flying squirrels. Convergent evolution. Or, or any flying squirrels. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And the last little bit I'll give, I should have shared this earlier, but do you know where Glaucomys comes from, the, the genus name? No, I'm not totally sure. All right. Well, Glaucos is Greek. That means silvery. Okay. And Mies is mouse. Oh, silvery mouse. Silvery mouse. Interesting. Yeah. And then uh, Volans, the southern flying squirrel. Mm -hmm. I know you said it a little differently. You know what that means? Huh. Flying. <laughs> really? Yeah. All right. What does Sabrinus mean? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't get is, a chance to look that what one up. What does Organensis mean? <laughs> I think that means... Of Oregon? Of California. <laughs> of California. <laughs> All right. So what else do you have? Oh, in terms of their habits, and since it's winter out right now and our beards are pretty frozen, I think it's a good reminder. The northern flying squirrel is usually solitary, but it may share its nest in winter and sometimes aggregates at good sources of food. Whereas the southern flying squirrel in winter, groups of three to eight, and sometimes as many as 50, I guess, wow. can share a nest. And also, like I said before, they can become torpid in very cold weather. And I did come across a study that said that uh, southern flying squirrels there's some research that indicates they don't group like that just for warmth because they have found some evidence of it uh, during more warm times of the year. So they think there may be a social aspect to it. Interesting. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, we got some downy woodpeckers. Oh, 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 there's a chickadee that just tried to land on Steve's notes. <laughs> <laughs> we should say the chickadees here at Tift, they're acclimated to people and they're often land in people's hands uh, looking for handouts. And nut hatches will do it too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't think the mics are sensitive enough to pick it up, but we're standing near a stand of Phragmites. Oh, chickadee, again, is trying to land on it. I don't know if you folks can hear it. There's a downy woodpecker pecking on old Phragmites stems. Oh, yeah, I've seen it before plenty of times. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I've never seen this. So, there must be insects in there then. Oh, yeah, you would yeah. think so. <laughs> One straight up landed on my notes that time. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about mating and reproduction. I only have a very little bit on it. Yeah. But um, the northern flying squirrel, it usually nests in tree cavities, such as woodpecker holes. I kind of brought that up before for suitable habitat. Yeah, these all our New World species are cavity nesters. Yeah. Yeah. But it also makes its nests on branches. What? Yeah. Or it can build roofs over birds' nests. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it uses <laughs> it remodels. Yeah. <laughs> so it uses leaves and twigs in the outer layer of the nest, and it lines it with shredded bark, grass, lichens, feathers, or pine needles. Um, and it has litters of three or four that are born in the late spring and often remain with the mother over the winter. Now, did you find anything that referred to how many litters they have in a year? Um, I think I saw up to two, but usually yeah. one. It's usually one, but there's been recent research that's found, again, in southeastern Canada that they found evidence of northern flying squirrels having two 
litters in a year. Now, I've definitely heard that about southern flying squirrels, yes. that it'll breed once or twice a year yeah. with a similar size litter, a little bit smaller, two to four, uh, and sometimes at the most, you may find six. Right. And their gliding and nests are similar to the northern squirrels. So most of the stuff we said about the northern is also true of the southern as well. Did you see any pictures of baby flying squirrels? I didn't. Oh, man, they are cute. Yeah. So I do have to admit, I, I started to look up uh, how much it costs to get a pet flying squirrel <laughs> <laughs> and whether or not it was legal in New York State. <laughs> All right, do you want to move on to diet now? Yeah. Okay, so uh, one thing that I found was that at feeders, southern flying squirrels are much more aggressive and skittish than the northern flying squirrels. Oh, okay. At feeders, yeah. And I also read that northern flying squirrels are much more likely just to kind of mind their own business. <laughs> they actually, uh, they generally feed quietly and for long periods of time. And the northern flying squirrel eats nuts and seeds, tree sap. So it's uh, saprivore, is that what we called it? Saprivore, yeah. Yeah. It also eats fungi and lichens. Um, the northern is more carnivorous than other squirrels. It eats birds' eggs and nestlings, mice, insects, and carrion. Did you hear that? I didn't hear about the carrion, no. Yeah. But generally speaking, they're omnivorous yeah. flying squirrels. Yeah, the diet varies seasonally and among habitats, but truffles, especially in the spring and autumn, and lichens, especially in the winter, are what's most reported. Okay. And the northern and southern flying squirrels have similar diets, but the southern eats more nuts and less fungi than the northern. But the southern also stores nuts for winter use. And I did find one study from 2014 that looked at the feeding habits of the southern flying squirrel. Do you know what made up 49.7% of their daily diet? Wow, almost half. No, yeah. what is it? White oak acorns. Oh! <laughs> Low in tannin, baby. Yep. See our uh, acorns and... Corvids episode. Acorns and Corvids are MIFO. Yeah. <laughs> Made for each other. That's right. And then I did find that as far as predators of flying squirrels, uh, snakes, owls, raccoons, coyotes eat them, as well as house cats. Oh, house cats. <laughs> Keep those cats inside, folks. We could mention house cats on every single episode. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love my cat. Yep, me too. But I'm not going to let her outside. <laughs> That's why I keep them inside, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I have a little bit more on evolution. Ooh, exciting. So I looked into the hypotheses around why gliding developed as an adaptation. Mm -hmm. So the first hypothesis I came across was related to energy efficiency and foraging. And they're theorizing that gliding is an energy, energetically efficient way to get from one tree to another while foraging among the trees, as opposed to just climbing down one tree and then having to climb up another tree and then having to maneuver on the ground floor. Uh, by gliding at high speeds, flying squirrels can rummage through a greater area of forest more quickly than a tree squirrel could. Okay. All right. And then the other hypothesis I came across stated that the mechanism evolved to avoid nearby predators and prevent injury. So if a dangerous situation arises on a certain tree, a flying squirrel can just quickly glide to another and um, theoretically escape the danger. And then furthermore, the takeoff and landing procedures during leaps may explain the gliding mechanism. So while leaping at high speeds are important to escape danger, the high forced impact of landing on a new tree could cause injury, but the gliding mechanism of flying squirrels involves structures and techniques during flight that allow for greater stability and control. Uh, now, I wonder, I know birds are probably faster 
like let's say owls, like an owl who's trying to go after them. Now, it, it kind of sounds like from what you were saying before, where they can maneuver, they can turn a whole 180 degrees. It yeah. seems like the flank girl might be more maneuverable in the air. Or what do you think? D did you hear anything about that? I didn't. What I did come across was a study that was looking at the question of whether or not the gliding mechanism of a flying squirrel could be seen as an intermediary uh, evolutionary step before flight. Oh. So they were looking at um, energy values and the energy of flapping sure. versus gliding. Yeah. And they came up with the idea that, yes, it could potentially be an intermediary step, but... But it's also important to note that evolution doesn't have direction. Right. And that's, I think, maybe one of the most important things. Like, nothing's trying to fly. Right. Nothing's trying to become as smart as a human. <laughs> nothing's trying... You know, like, evolution's not trying anything. It's right. just what works. And they were just saying that creatures that have evolved flying possibly were... Their ancestors were gliders. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard that, that potentially some of the raptors may have been... Gliders, gliders a little bit yeah before they evolved in before eventually evolved into birds yeah yeah okay so the last thing that i want to touch on is the status of the flying squirrels so the northern flying squirrel is endangered in pennsylvania uh oh really and the subspecies of the northern flying squirrel glaucomys sabrinus coloratus is federally endangered in the southern appalachians i don't know if we mentioned it before i think we touched on it briefly the northern flying squirrel, there's a number of subspecies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I found quite a long list. Yeah, well, so speaking of the list, <laughs> um, after the split that I was talking about uh, earlier this year, Glaucomys organensis has five subspecies in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, wow. Glaucomys sabrinus has 17 subspecies throughout the northern portions of continental North America. And Glaucomys volans has about 11 subspecies in the eastern U.S. Okay. Yeah, and good luck trying to tell each of those apart. <laughs> <laughs> but that makes sense because the northern and the southern, as we keep saying, their ranges are so large. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I'm surprised that the Humboldt actually has some subspecies because their range isn't that big. Yeah, uh, but every species has some subspecies, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, this comes up almost every episode, but it seems that global warming is causing southern flying squirrels to move northward and compete with northern flying squirrels. Uh. Yeah, and they might also be affecting northern flying squirrels in other ways, not just through competition, but I do think it's kind of funny to think about a two and a half ounce southern flying squirrel out competing a four ounce northern <laughs> flying squirrel. <laughs> but, you know, nature isn't as straightforward as my initial biases, and there's a lot more to it. And so, remember, you often see red squirrels chase away gray squirrels from certain areas. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Southern flying squirrels are the reservoir for the parasitic nematode Strogoloides robustus. And studies on captive flying squirrels suggest that the nematode reduces survival and productivity of the northern flying squirrel, while the southern flying squirrel are seemingly unaffected. Oh, so yeah. maybe they evolved with it. Yeah. yeah. So a study in New York and Pennsylvania found some evidence supporting predictions from the parasite-mediated competition hypothesis. Northern flying squirrels from New York, where the southern flying squirrel is absent, lacked the parasitic nematode. But some individuals from Pennsylvania, where the two species occur sympatrically, so their ranges overlap, were infected with the nematode. So that does suggest 
that where there are southern and northern, the southern... Are infecting the northern. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. The study was not conclusive, though. The researchers did not see a correlation between parasite load and body condition, so they weren't seeing unhealthy squirrels because of parasites. Oh. Um, so more tests need to be done. But since this kind of study is difficult to do in the field, and because northern flying squirrels are protected in a lot of the southern part of their range, we may actually need to do infection studies in a lab. It just may not be something we could do in the wild. Okay. Yep. They also found that Strigoloides robustus infection was closely related with another nematode parasite. And Bill, do you want to try to even pronounce that one? <laughs> I will try. Terry Goddard... Oh, man. <laughs> Terrigatermatides paromyces. Good job, Ashley. So this suggests that one parasite can facilitate the infestation of another that otherwise could not have survived in the host. Yeah. So as soon as Strogolites robustus is there, it then, opens the door for this yep, other one. It opens the door for the other one, okay. and that could definitely lead to complications within the northern flying squirrels as well. But it could also just mean that these parasites are abundant in the same geographic regions. But specifically with this topic of northern flying squirrels on the decline and southern flying squirrels migrating upwards due to climate change, we definitely need to do more studies on it. And I don't know, I think so it's kind of an exciting topic. So you're saying more research is necessary? <laughs> like every single episode, <laughs> yeah. All right, well, do you have anything else? No, I think that's it. All right, well, I got to say, I think we did pretty well with the attempts considering how cold it is. Yeah. I think we were lucky because there's virtually no wind. And we have uh, a bright sunny day. Yep. Yeah. So the only fatality was your iPad. Yeah, I guess batteries don't really work in the cold very well, <laughs> as it turns out. Yeah. So first and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. As always, a special thank you to our top patrons, Alyssa, Rob, we name the dog Indy, Bethany, Matt, and especially Scott, Ken, Diane, and Morgan. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. And we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers. Yeah. So thank you... Q G K U D H D D F J V F F. I'll just call you Q from now on. <laughs> Bill Davenport and Damp, D A M P, all caps. Uh, these three newest reviews are possibly my favorite reviews we've gotten so far. So I'm just going to read a few of the highlights. Right. So I'm going to pat myself on the back for one. So uh, from Q, I especially love how Steve laughs while delivering information that's objectively not funny. <laughs> It was a five-star review, though. Seriously, guys, it's the best. And, you know, I'll admit that in the early episodes, there was probably some nervous laughter. But, you know, I find myself laughing at things when I find them interesting, unexpected, and probably the most often, depressing. Yeah. <laughs> that happens all the time. Like, every episode, there's something depressing to laugh about. It's a coping mechanism. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that and my sometimes cringeworthy sense of humor, for That's sure. That's for sure. <laughs> So, uh, Bill Davenport said that he found us on Reddit, and we need to thank We Name the Dog Indy for posting our podcast on a couple subreddits for us. If you use Reddit, and you like the show, and you're good at clickbait titles, uh, feel free to try to share some of our episodes on relevant subreddits so we can reach new people. Uh, so, Reddit frowns on self-promotion for the most part, so we'll leave it up to you guys to help us out, if you're inclined to do so. Sure. But, you know, we're not really supposed to be advertising ourselves too much on there, I guess. And lastly, I'm just going to read Damp's entire review because it really is one of my favorites. So, 
This is the podcast I look forward to the most. A month is too long to wait. Fortunately, Bill and Steve like to talk and hike so much that they post bonus episodes from time to time. Like snow days, the extra episodes are unexpected delights. Most importantly, this podcast is the reason why, for the first time ever, I found myself searching for botany articles in scientific journals earlier this week. Uh, The field guides are both inspiring and entertaining. That's awesome. This is my favorite thing ever. (laughs) I love that we influence someone to read up on some peer-reviewed studies. You know, that's... I think that would be, like, the goal of the podcast. (laughs) And just so you guys know, we often use publicly available sources for the podcast. So if any of the studies that we talk about sound interesting, you could check it out in our works cited, and you can probably find it available free on Google Scholar for the most part. So related to that, can I read a recent email that we got? Oh, sure. Sure. So I I know you've seen this before, but uh, this email just really meant a lot to me. So this email was in response to our acorns and corvids episode so this said gentlemen i want to congratulate and thank you for a great podcast on the topic obviously i'm charmed that you found our review paper helpful but you went way beyond what's in there and provided an accurate and informative listening experience it is literally the dream of researchers to have others find their work so useful i will try to get the cornell lab of ornithology or the smithsonian folks to give you guys a shout out or share we, also, we are also about to publish a big simulation model about the impact of corvids on oak habitat restoration on California's Channel Islands. It should become available on the website of the Journal of Applied Ecology on December 6th. For now, I want to repeat my thanks and send you greetings from California. Mario Pessendorfer, Ph.D., Cornell Lab of Ornithology. <laughs> Dr. Pessendorfer... <laughs> Thank you so much, but now you've made me nervous. We have to raise the bar because now... People are listening. (laughs) Researchers who we're citing are now listening to the podcast, and we cannot mess up representing their work now. (laughs) It's definitely raised my level of precision when I'm looking at different studies and translating them into uh, what I'm going to say on on mic. Yeah, I think this is the best case scenario. We have... uh, no, our butts are under a fire, a flame a little bit, so uh, yeah. <laughs> we not, now we know we have to be extra careful with how we talk about things. And I did check uh, the website before we recorded today, so Dr. Pessendorfer's study, uh, the big simulation model he was talking about, about corvids and oak habitat, that is available online for people to look at. Oh, great. We yeah. can leave a link in our episode description then. Sure. Yeah, yeah. we can do that. As always, keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps the word get out to more people. So if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. And don't forget to email us some questions for our Ask Us Anything bonus episode. We're doing because we got 25 written reviews. Visit us on Instagram at the Field Guides Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Field Guides Pod. Like and follow us on Facebook, and visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And don't forget to check out the Etsy page for Always Wondering Art. And if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash thefieldguides. But if you're like us and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher because that really helps us get the word out to more people. So folks... Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next month. And Happy New Year. Yeah. Yeah, I plugged it in, 55% battery left, and somehow 5 degrees killed it. Yeah. Yeah.